This is Fun Raising Radio, and today is a guest speaker. We have Tristan Pollock, serial entrepreneur who sold two of his companies and then was a venture partner at 500 Startups for a few years. In this episode, we'll talk about exactly this, building and selling several companies and then becoming, uh, basically switching the table sides, becoming the investor. We'll see both of the perspectives of, of Tristan and we'll talk about them. But before we begin, actually, I wanted to say thanks to Human IPO. I bought Tristan's time on Human IPO and then redeemed that half an hour to invite him to the podcast. So check it out. It's a pretty cool uh, platform, very innovative. I'm really supportive of them. By the way, they did not pay me to say this stuff. So I'll leave the link to Human IPO and you can check it out. But now it's time to go to the episode. Tristan, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on your first company that you built, Social Earth. Yeah, thanks for having me, Constantine. So uh, Social Earth, wow, uh, what a throwback at this point. Probably almost a decade ago, uh, one of my first startups. And uh, we wanted to build a, you know, a media platform, a news site that focused more on stories of change than stories of fear. And, uh, you know, if you've watched the news in the U.S. and the mainstream media, it's like a lot of times that's what you see. You know, there's a lot of bad things happening. But how, how do we, you know, take those things that are happening and turn it into something that's more solution oriented? And so that's what Social Earth was all about. We ended up having uh, around 130 plus, maybe 150 contributors across the world in like 25 different countries, all focused around social entrepreneurship. Um, you know, people, Ashoka Fellows, uh, the Skull Foundation, we had all sorts of organizations and entrepreneurs helping share their stories uh, on the platform. And then we grew that organically for a few years. Uh, we had bootstrapped it. And then that's, that's what brought me to my first venture back startup storefront, uh, which was a, you know, an Airbnb for retail space, so to speak. And uh, that's also what brought me from my home state of Minnesota out to San Francisco and Silicon Valley and started kind of my Silicon Valley stage of my life. Mm -hmm. Right. So first question that I sometimes get from the founders who want to feel, you know, this sense of success is the question, how is fundraising different if you already uh, can count yourself as a successful entrepreneur? So how does fundraising work after you already sold your first company and trying to raise money for the second one? What can you tell you about that? Yeah, well, I'd say investors are definitely still critical. Um, you know, if if now if you've had a Silicon Valley exit on your on your last company, that makes it pretty easy to raise money uh, without having to even prove out much traction. But for Social Earth, you know, it wasn't a Silicon Valley exit. You know, we sold it to a media company, you know, media company roll up sort of experience, and so you know we were happy with it, but it wasn't it wasn't you know we didn't we didn't really have an involvement or a network in Silicon Valley. So I'd say really what helped us break through was the accelerator program AngelPad that we went through in San Francisco. And that really gave us our first network of investors and uh, good people to know in, in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Right, accelerators are a great source of that. And I always advise early stage founders to go through damn accelerators, don't try to reach out to VCs, that's insane. But let's talk about the storefront uh fundraising process so uh we're not going to talk about social earth because you bootstrapped the whole thing but for storefront front you raised according to crunch base over nine million dollars right 
when did yeah. you decide that it's time to fundraise? You know, when was this point when you were like, okay, yeah, now we actually do need money and we'll go out to investors? Yeah, we had a real rapid fire experience of that. Um, we got into AngelPad. It was the only accelerator we applied to and found out that we got in three days before it started. So we packed up, dropped everything we were doing <laughs> in Minnesota, moved out to San Francisco <laughs> and showed up on Monday at like 8 a.m. waiting outside the door with the other, you know, 12 sets of founders that were going to be in that batch. And uh, and so, you know, for the next three months, we lived with two other founders that we didn't even know, uh, you know, <laughs> at the beginning of the program. So uh, four of us in a one bedroom apartment with nice. no furniture. <laughs> so uh, oh, e even my wife eventually uh, came out and lived with us. So it was like we had like five people in there for, <laughs> for, for, a, for a second uh, at the oh. end. Um, and, uh, and so that was our, and that's, you know, and it's expensive to live in San Francisco. And, you know, especially if you're coming from anywhere else, uh, mm -hmm. if you're not coming from a major metropolitan city, it's pretty expensive. So, right. uh, figuring that out while working a, a, you know, running basically a still bootstrap startup, um, although we got funding from AngelPad, but you know, a lot of, as anyone who's went through an accelerator knows, you don't get that funding day one. Usually it takes, mm -hmm. you know, you get it mid batch or sometimes even the end of the batch. And so. That was that was the kind of the story that went into um, you know getting us there and getting a, basically our first funding through AngelPad and their partner VCs, um, and then the second stage of that was, you know, all right, like try to kick ass through this program, build out your MVP further, get your first customers, and we did all this, and then at the end of the program, it was like, okay, now it's fundraising time. We do demo day, introduce you, you really go out there and push it hard. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, you know, once we basically got on that, that turn wheel, um, you know, of joining angel pad, then it's like, well, then that meant demo day at the end of angel pad. And then, you know, uh, that meant, okay, seed round. And then a year later, after we raised our seed, we got to like a round and it's just very much that kind of programmatical systematic way that people go about fundraising if you if you can and you can su successfully fundraise so that's the other challenge but we basically hit demo day and we're like we're not sure if we're completely ready to fundraise but we, <laughs> this is the process and this is how we do it and this is our chance to actually get a lot of these introductions warm introductions from angel pad and tomas corte um who runs it you know an ex-google guy and so that's we we basically dove head first into starting to raise our seed round at what I think was the end of in November, uh, which, you know, as 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 anyone who's tried to fundraise in certain times of the year, not all times of the year create equal. And so mm -hmm, right. when you're talking about Christmas and winter <laughs> and, you know, yep. winter, you know, winter break for kids from kids going to school. It's not the best time. Uh, it's a little bit late for VCs. And mm -hmm. uh, you and so what we ended up doing was like first mistake. We tried to pitch like some of the best VCs first, <laughs> uh. you know, and we did that. And then we like, OK, this is not working. We, we need to pitch more <laughs> angels. And so we started pitching more angels. Um, and so we were able to close a good portion of the round by the end of the year just by saying, look, like we're going to wrap up any more angel funding uh, and then we're going to move on and finish the round in the new year. But it was definitely a lot of a lot of things you hear, hear people say it was a full time job. You have to stay focused. You have to be a networking freak. 
-hmm. we did five meetings a day with VCs. You have to be strategic when you have meetings in San Francisco versus Silicon Valley and Menlo Park, Um, you know, uh, Sand Hill Road, right? Like that's that could be, you know, an extra two to four hours of driving time. And, you know, that cuts out of your day. So all those little strategic process things are super important to running a fundraising process. And and so that's one of the things I, I probably will emphasize the most during this podcast is you need to run a strategic and thoughtful process. Let's talk about that process. Let's start from the very beginning. So let's pretend we've already, I mean, you've already gone through this uh, accelerator program. You are at the demo day. What happens next? Where actually, where do you start this fundraising process, the structured fundraising process? Was it before the demo day that you started or was it after it? Yes, exactly. So your fundraising process starts long before you even have your first meeting. Um, you know, you could say roughly a month, let's say, uh, you know, I think, you know, for 500 startups or AngelPad, I think we started having meetings um, a month before the end of the program. Um, and, you know, sometimes that, you know, we saw deals get done in AngelPad uh, with people close. You know, there was, we were, I think, the third company to close our round, but we didn't close till the next year, I think, at the beginning of March. And so, there were people, there were a couple founders that closed their round before even the program was over because they had friendly meetings with Google Ventures uh, or Index and they liked them and they knew that they had an early shot at them and they had already been pre-vetted by AngelPad and, uh, and ha- you know, had that dialogue with the founder of AngelPad. And so they're like, okay, this is great. It's an opportunity for us to get in early when normally we might, we could potentially lose out to another VC that's willing to write a check that, you know, has a better relationship with them or has a better offering. Mm-hmm. So we saw a couple of rounds, you know, close just like that in those early meetings. Now that said, I don't think that's how it usually plays out. Yep. Um, <laughs> 99% of the time, you're going to have to really work for it. And that's what we had to do. And so we started, uh, we practiced our pitch hundred times sitting in a room. My found Mike, you know, co-founder to co-founder, I would pitch Eric, he would pitch me. And we just go over and over it and, and, and iterate and iterate and iterate and change the design and change the talking points. And, you know, this is basically, this, this is one of the big benefits of demo day. Now there are a lot of demo days these days, and sometimes they don't get as much attention from investors, but what it, regardless, it's great practice for founders. Um, you know, to be honest, you should almost have your own internal demo day. If you're going to go out and fundraise, you know, it's like practice your pitch, practice your pitch, practice your now you have to present your pitch. Now you start, you know, and when, and after that, or around that time, you start having meetings with friendly investors or fun or fun or other founders or entrepreneurs that have raised money um, and raised around like similar to what you raised or, you know, in the same space. And that's going to, you know, that, that you have those friendly meetings, you get more critique. So by the time you have your first meeting, you're going to feel pretty good about what you have. You're, you're not going to waste a lot of time having to tweak. You will still tweak probably through the fundraising process, but you're not going to have to tweak the deck and the pitch and how you're presenting the company too much by the time you hit square one of pitch meetings. And why is that? Well, if you start ch- having to change your pitch and you go back to other people and like VCs talk, then it's like, it's going to seem like, you know, there isn't really a strong narrative here that you actually have thought through. And really, 
there isn't always a yes or no answer for a lot of questions that VCs ask. It's have you thought yeah. through it? Yep. So in that process period, when you hit that point and you also want to get it right, because ideally, like we did, you're having three to five meetings a day. Um, you know, it's sometimes more difficult to do in places that there aren't as many VCs as, you know, Silicon Valley and San Francisco, but there's, there's, a, there is a growing number of VCs and angels in all major metropolitan areas. So I think you'd be surprised that, you know, I think most metros, you could probably put together a target list of a hundred investors and then try to get as many meetings and intro warm intros set up in like a month or two period so that they're all close to each other. And why does that help? Because it gives you leverage that you wouldn't other otherwise have. It gives you this leverage to show that, hey, we just closed a 25K check yesterday. And actually this VC just got involved you know, this week. And that sort of kind of FOMO generating energy is something <laughs> you wouldn't get if you have like one-off ad hoc meetings here and there. Like, right. let me talk to you on, you know, in June and let me talk to you in July and you just won't ever get that momentum. So unless you have something else, that's really interesting about the company traction, your backgrounds, you've sold a company before, uh, you already have good connections. Um, you just don't, you want to have optionality and you don't know what, who, what investors are going to say yes. And my experience, you know, 90%, 95% of investors say no, even if you are successful. Right, right, right. That's a good point. But one of the questions that are probably the most frequently asked question is how should I get those means? So how do I create this momentum? How do I reach out to this huge number of investors who want to meet me? What was your what was your strategy on that? Yeah, great question. Um, so a few things. One, ideally that you want to have uh, warm introductions, right? So you want to have somebody who knows this investor, who this investor has invested in, a friendly founder, um, you know, another investor that is invested in you makes the introduction. That's obviously the ideal realm. Now, if that's not possible, then I recommend starting out. And this is why this is this the pro the fundraising process almost never can never stop for, sometimes because the early part of the process, getting these connections, building your network, that's the part that can go year round every year. Uh, and what do you do? You know, so when, as soon as we got into AngelPad, we didn't have a network in San Francisco. We met with other AngelPad founders. We got an introduction or cold emailed them, you know, guessed their email, found their email on their site or whatever, <laughs> them and said, hey, we're going through AngelPad right now. Want your advice on how to get through, you know, do the best to get through it with the most success. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start, you know, and then, and then that's kind of that short, you know, 30 minute conversation or so sets the stage for us to be able to show, Hey, one, we know what we're doing. We're not crazy. If you make an introduction for us later on, uh, then you know that we we've passed those tests. And so now, you now if we follow up with them in a, in a two two three months time they'll probably make you know one two three introductions to investors so mm -hmm. the larger your founder network the more introductions you can get and then the, that means just the more leads and target people on your target list that you'll be able to reach so i really think it's a strong founder network um to begin with for someone who's breaking into the industry or 
you know, is just trying to figure out how to start their fundraising process, build your founder network, help people, uh, you know, support other founders, um, you know, have meetings and get to know them, see if you can support them. So then when you have an ask, like an introduction to investor, you know, you can, you know, quickly and succinctly show them what you're going to, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, and then they can feel comfortable making an introduction, knowing that also you're someone who isn't just a, you know, a taker you give to. Right. That's a great point. And by the way, for people who do not want to guess investors' emails, there is a tool called SalesQL. You just uh, need to find their LinkedIn and you put it in the SalesQL and it's going to give the, you their email addresses. So that's a, that's a good point there. But oh, wow, I like that. I, <laughs> I, I wish I had that tool um, back in the day. I think, uh, I, what did we use? There was a really great tool called, uh, oh man, what was it called? It was it was kind of like you know we used tout which is like an early form of outreach um you know we use different types of like email technology or you know sales technology like that in an early stage and then there was this one tool that would not just show you who you know like linkedin shows you who you're connected to but it would like overlay on top of linkedin or angelist and it would show the signal strength so based on it on a gmail integration it would show like how how many like how recently and how often has this person emailed with this other person so you could actually find the strong now i would love to see that tool again full contact bought this company but i never saw it implemented um so yeah yeah like that's a good point use there's a lot of tools out there that you can use to get creative and figure things out mm -hmm. and, and another another vc firm to look at is uh, nfx right who focused a lot on marketplaces but they've created all sorts of interesting you know in fundraising tools like the what the company brief was the, one of the most recent ones, but they also created this the network social network signal yep. to help you find connections to investors. So there is a lot. There's so much more than when I think we were fundraising, you know, <laughs> seven eight years ago. It was it was a lot of angel list and uh, cold, yeah, guessing people's emails. <laughs> That's great. That's great. But you know, it's 2020 now, so people try not to guess people's emails, just try to find the, the right tools for that. So now let's talk about the acquisition part. Uh, you raised successfully, you got a happy ending there. How did this happy ending happen? Did you actually plan for the acquisition or did it just happen? Great question. Yeah, um, on the storefront side of things, well, let's say starting like the social side of things, um, you know, I think there's, there's this common saying, right? Companies are bought, not sold. I think when you're seeing, I think it also comes from strong relationships that you build during your company. So just like you build strong relationships with founders that might pay off with in, in introductions later on, you do the same with, you know, partnerships and strategic, you know, strategic partnerships, business development relationships, um, and other, other founder, founder to CEO relationships or founder to COO or, you know, and so on and so forth. So, you know, with with Social Earth, we had we had formed good relationships with other players in like the social impact media space. Uh, and so then when we were ready, we kind of hit a point where we're like, where we feel like it's the right time to you know have this conversation. You know, we could reach out to some of these people, and they knew who we were. They knew what we've been building. They knew that we had built one of the most highly trafficked sites out there in the space, and we could show them that sort of you know deck. Uh, of like, you know, here's the breakdown of things. So you probably will have a deck 
that you know breaks down the whole company kind of somewhere similar to a board deck or an investor deck mm -hmm. and then on the storefront side you know there's obviously like any startup there's a long startup roller coaster of a lot of ups and downs i think we hit a point where we're like okay this it's it's time to move this forward we had an interest from a uh, French company doing something similar and the ability to combine this similar to actually the social earth story, combine this into a larger kind of conglomerate within the space that we were, we were attacking. We had the network in the U S they had the network in Europe and we're starting to focus, look at Asia. And so it's like, well, we could come together and be stronger. And at that point, I think that's when we first started storefront, there was maybe a couple other you know, nonprofits that were doing something similar in the space. So, so we were definitely one of the first movers. And then, uh, you know, five, six years later, there's hundreds, you know, every different geography has, has, a, has a storefront copycat now. <laughs> so coming together in that way, I think was very beneficial. And mm -hmm. now that now we have a new, you know, there's a new CEO running the, running the business and they kept the storefront brand. So it, it lives on. And so that's cool to see that, that awesome. you know, you've built a strong enough brand um, with value to people that you're able to continue to move that on. And I think I owe that a lot to our community that we, that we really fostered. That's really great. And congrats on that. That's, that's impressive. But now let's talk about your experience with 500 startups. How did you become the venture partner of 500 startups and what does it mean? What do you do? What did you do there as a venture partner? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Five hundred startups is great. You know, it's a very inclusive company. They, you know, they care a lot about funding founders, uh, no matter where they're from, what they look like, all around the world. So they, they're, it, I, I learned a lot from my time there. I think uh, it's they're a little non-traditional as well, and the venture partner role or the EIR role entrepreneur in residence that I started in um, was a, is a lot more of like a mentor role. Um, you know, I kind of had that, you know, 20% time that Google gives uh, a week to kind of work on whatever internal projects, external projects. And then I spent a lot of my time supporting the accelerator and the companies that would, we would select to come in. So I would, you know, sat on selection committees for, six plus uh, accelerator programs in San Francisco and made, helped make those selections of the companies we wanted to bring in. And then we'll mentor a subset of those five to 10 companies that were in the program for the four months that they went through it in San Francisco in our office. And, uh, and so that was a lot of it. I was like imparting my time and giving it back to the founders in order to help them make less mistakes and get connected faster. And I really appreciated that opportunity. Um, Christine Sai was the one who brought me in, and she had actually was the one who wrote the check, uh, the first one of the first checks into storefront. So it was a cool like full circle moment for me. And I also I talk a lot about founder mentorship and founder to founder mentorship, and it was something I I you know probably got myself to the edge of burnout with storefront. Um, I didn't take as care take as much you know care of myself physically or mentally. I worked. 24 seven, uh, for the, for those years. And, uh, and I, so I also didn't leave as much time open to helping other founders. And so this gave me a chance once I got to the end of that, to then start giving back into the community more 
and be able to open up my time. So that was the kind of ERO role, which then transitioned to a, you know, a, a tra I then added, I guess it didn't even take away that part because I still mentored founders, but then added the venture part partner role. So then I also did some direct investing, um, built out, you know, different theses and, uh, how, continue to build a network of founders and try to you know support the you know the, you know, the, the founders we were most excited about bring them into 500 invest in them mm -hmm. build those relationships so that part became a little bit more of maybe a traditional uh you know partner at a firm um and and as well as the other side of it that's a little bit unique with 500 is there's a lot of time spent supporting other programs because we have programs you know where yc went really deep and they have the fellowship and then they have the main program and they have like the growth fund um and then they even have like a research program at, even at the very early stages uh 500 went really wide and so they went you know across the globe they have you know different venture firms and uh programs in countries like korea and japan and Canada and MENA, and so all these regions, right? So that a lot of time also we would support these other avenues because, you know, the, the, probably the next biggest you know jump from going from somewhere out in the US like me to Silicon Valley is like going internationally, right? Like coming from another country then trying to break into the VC realm in Silicon Valley. And I think that was something we were very good at and helped uh, founders really make that leap from international countries into the US, get them first funding from a US-based VC fund, and uh, and then, you know, really be able to get things starting to, to roll forward. Mm -hmm. Right, so you are not working at 500 startups anymore, but I was curious, as a successful founder uh, with an exit, with actually two exits, do you still do any advisory role and do you do any angel investments whatsoever to the earlier stage companies or not anymore? Yeah, I do very selectively. Um, not as much over the past couple of years, but I've done a handful of angel investments and advising. Right now, I I focus on advising a few companies every year. Um, have some interesting ones I'm working with right now. Moobert is uh, a music AI royalty-free no technology. <laughs> You know them? Yeah, I met them like a year ago. <laughs> yeah, they they just raised a million seed and yep. uh, have have you know like 300 million access to 300 million users through integrations and like I don't know like a million listens uh, a day or something like this. Yep. So like they've really uh, evolved since the first time I talked to them, which probably was at 500, and and I think they were just too early at the time. Um, I'm working with another company called Capbase which is probably really relevant to your audience. Uh, they are helping with all the startup governance stuff, you know, from incorporation to tying that back to your legal docs, you know, basically doing a much smarter and easier to use process than something like Carta or some of the clunkier tools out there. It's, it, it's like being this one-stop shop for setting up your startup and running it. Um, and so, yeah, that those are that's some of the some of the avenues that I've been working with, and I, I really appreciate that advising. I mean, I'm always I think I'll be a mentor advisor for for life because I think it's <laughs> just so valuable. I would yep. rec that would be my number one recommendation. If I when I got to San Francisco, um, we talked to a lot of founders and you know built a lot of relationships. But I would say once you, when you find someone that you click with, 
uh, or that has some has some knowledge and is interested in what you're doing, has some knowledge that you don't have, uh, or has been like one or two stages ahead of you. You know, like you're pre-seed and someone's done a seed round or a Series A round, and that that you know those those could be amazing people to build a stronger relationship with. You know, basically, my mentors now are my friends, and I think it's important to take a second, step out of your own shoes, and get an outside person's perspective on what you're doing to just understand if you, you know, your ideas and your perspective make sense or you're missing anything. Because there's definitely things you're missing, you just don't know. And so that's where mentors come in, super valuable. You know, and as you get funding too, pick up a pick up a like an executive coach or a founder coach. Um, you know, the, those, I think those people, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like sit in the middle of that because I'm like, okay, I'm like this, like, you know, investor slash advisor slash startup founder. But, you know, somebody who understands that realm and like, you know, becoming uh, a leader and as well as like some of the intricacies of startups. I mean, you could also have multiple investors or multiple mentors. So I think that's just uh, my one, the main piece of advice I'd say is find awesome people to surround yourself with. That have a variety of opinions so that you're going to not miss anything as you're building your company right 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 but my personal view on anyone who has a coach in their title i did not like those people for some reason i think that if you want to get like you know an improved uh, education on how to be an entrepreneur on how to build your own venture on whatever you want to there are great courses in like big good universities or there is coursera so I think I would I would much rather recommend you people going through that path. But you know, everyone has his or her own opinion, so choose wisely. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it can be friends. You know, I think it can be friends, and and obviously, if you're selecting someone with like you know who's a more formalized coach, like you're saying, then it's like you know vet them like an employee. You're essentially yeah. hiring that person, yep. so you should talk to multiple coaches. Find someone that you think has a good perspective, and you can always end the relationship at any time. So, I think it's, uh, I think it can be valuable. But you're right. I think you should also do your research and think about hiring them, um, less than yeah. just like contracting them. I think I just have a pre unpleasant experience with life coaches and just business coaches in general. Uh, as just once after after uh, uh, like it was I think a year and a half ago when I was building my first company. And after the demo day, I was, I had a pretty good presentation. I was happy about it. And I was waiting for the investors, you know, to come up and say like, Hey man, it was a pretty good one. Let's, let's have a coffee. And the only person who came up to me was a life coach. And I was like, Hey man, I'm a life coach. You want to talk? I'm like, damn it. No. <laughs> yeah. I was upset. So I guess that's how I do not like all the life coaches now. Anyways, let's move on to the last topic of today's episode. Last question, actually. It's a call to action. What's that one thing that you would recommend early stage entrepreneurs to do as soon as the episode is over? One thing. As soon as the episode is over? I feel like we already said it. Like, go I, set up a weekly, at least meet one new founder weekly. I would say that. Wonderful. This could go into, you know, this, I mean, you, you could make friends, you could, you know, have future investor intro, introductions, you could have a mentor, you know, you never know where it's going to go. So I would, I would, that, I think that's the mm -hmm. easy thing you can do. If you just met one new person every week, then what's that? You're going to meet 50 new, 50 new people in a year 
And, you know, that's going to really significantly build your network. Small sure. ask and mm -hmm. big results. That's a wonderful, wonderful advice and doesn't require too much, you know, effort and it really can't pay off. What's your recommendation on finding those uh, founders? So do you have any tools that you would recommend? Is it just Meetup or is it something else? I think you want to read, read interesting people on Twitter, on Substack, on Medium, and you'll, you'll be surprised. Some of the, some of the best read people will be open to having a chat if you're thoughtful mm -hmm. and you, and you don't waste their time and you write to them very thoughtfully. So I think, yeah, read people. Um, and you can also poke around on LinkedIn or, or AngelList and find people in relevant categories to what you're doing, like right. SaaS, marketplaces, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the environment, you know, social impact. Well, you can find people working in those spaces. So I'd say build a really strong network in your industry as well as your business model. Mm -hmm. Personal advice here for me is there's a tool called Lunch Club. First glance didn't have like the best experience with it, but it's really simple to use. It just basically it's like Tinder for, for founders and investors. So it's really simple, uh, doesn't require any effort whatsoever, and you just get matched with one person per week. Uh, so it's really helpful for that specific advice of Tristan. And on this note, we'll wrap it up. Thanks a lot, Tristan, for coming up, for taking your time to explain your personal experience with fundraising. You see it can be done now. Uh, thanks a lot for that, and have a great day. Of course. Thank you. And if anyone else has follow-up questions, feel free to tweet me at Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-C-K. Okay. I will leave the link to your Twitter account in the description of this episode, so feel free to check it out.